You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 425 is Julieta Visgo, Let's Bash the BBC, The Absurdity of the Naga Saga, and What's the Deal with Kevin MacLeod? That's all coming up after Mary Mary and Shackles. Show is hot out here. No, I don't mind though. Take a walk, take a walk. Um, now, if... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly how they, inter- they intended their lyrics to be interpreted. <laughs> now, if more uh, gospel music zipped along like that, I might find my way into church uh, more than once every 10 years. A hit all around the world in 2000, including number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100, number five in the UK, the splendid debut single from Mary Mary and Shackles. I remember that being absolutely everywhere on the radio over here. What a fantastic record. I agree with you entirely. 
Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 425. I'm Terence Dackham and in no danger of impeachment, it's Juliet Harris. Well, not this week anyway, although the world moves so fast at the moment, oh. it's impossible to tell. I'll probably be appearing on this podcast next week in shackles of my own. Do you see oh, what I did there? Oh, that's that's very, very good. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, time for the fifth episode in our celebrated and award-nominated mm. feature called Spot the Singer. <laughs> in this case, it's Spot the Band. Mm. Now, back in 1991... Um, Nirvana blasted their their way into our musical lives with Smells Like Teen mm, Spirit. Memorably so, yes. Who is this? And it's a really big name creating possibly the worst cover version of just about anything ever. Uh, this is four years later, live in concert in 1995. It is terrible and unusually I think you pick one that I actually know. Oh, right. I believe that this was Take That. Live at Earl's Court in 1995. <laughs> They've had 12 UK number one singles, eight number one albums. It is indeed the Masters of Egypt Rock. Take that. <laughs> I mean, it is it is enormously bad, isn't it? I mean, enormously bad. And it's, and it's easy to forget, given their comeback and they're sort of labelled a man band now, and it's all been really rather dignified. Towards the end of Take That kind of first first go round, they became really quite odd. I don't think their credit. <laughs> I don't think enough credit was given to how odd they were. Their stage wear became very odd. I believe there may have been nip- nipple piercings. Their last song, their How Deep Is Your Love their cover, um, mm. had a really strange video that appeared to feature some sort of woman trying to kidnap them, then push them into a river or something. <laughs> they went very weird at the end. So so I, the only reason I, knew, I, I guessed that correctly is because I did actually, for some reason, that was rattling around at the back of my brain that that had happened because I think I might have had a conversation with someone once just about how weird Take That went. And that really was very strange as well as very dreadful, of course. There's an awful video of of the occasion on YouTube in which Jason Orange tries to rock out on guitar. Oh, dear. Gary Barlow rips his T-shirt off as he sort of creeps <laughs> his way through the lyrics. It's not to be missed. It's no, it, it sounds it sounds excellent, but also cringeworthy at the same time, which actually I would use to describe myself. So I'm in no <laughs> position to criticise. Now, Jules, um, we all know you're a woman of independence. Uh, you don't quite, follow yes. the crowd. Uh, you set the trends. You don't follow them. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you. This, I'm glad you noticed. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. But this week I was learning of a movement, a vogue, uh, sweeping you young women all uh, all around the world um so sweeping you all along uh, these are visco girls it's spelled um v-s-c-o but pronounced visco i believe uh, a new whim and um as with all of these new young trends there's a uniform to follow mm. oversized t-shirts crop tops scrunches and crucially barely visible shorts now jules are you a visco girl I mean, the thing that I find find so heartwarming about your inclusion of me in this is that it is actually aimed at 
uh, teenage girls the Rizgo movements. And can I just point out, I am 35. So I think this idea that I am a young person probably needs to come to an end now. I, I, I'm as unhappy about it as you are, but I suspect oh. that's that what has to happen. So I've had a look at this Rizgo thing, and it made me realise I'm not a, I'm not a young person anymore. Because really, this this uh, article on it from Slate to try and find out what on earth is going on. I don't understand any of it, Terence. It's not even like I can go, oh yeah, this is. I get that. It's like this and this is. I mean, it's literally just like it's, it's what's that expression? Word salad. That's how I felt this article was to me. The only thing I could say about it, which again makes me realise I am not young, in that quite a lot of this. So. Um, shell necklaces, scrunchies, um, oversized name brand T-shirts. Is this not just the 90s again? Because I remember people wearing <laughs> stuff like that when I was at, when I was a teenager in the 90s. So when I was at school and college, I find it very, I just find it very amusing how how fashion seems to come back round and alarming that fashion from my youth and we all were labouring under the misapprehension that I'm still a young person. That fashion <laughs> from even my youth has now become a retro thing. I, the amount of times I've been DJing locally and lots of young kids, sort of teenagers, maybe early 20s, wandering at about 11 o'clock at night. And they are all wearing Adidas proper trousers, kappa tops. Um, we, mm. my, my partner and I spent ages the other day trying to remember what the sweatshirt was that everybody wore when we were using. Eventually, Google revealed that it was NAFNAF, aka the United Colours of Benetton. They all now come in wearing that kind of stuff. And it is really strange that this kind of new fashion that's come back there's nothing of the sort at all, although I suspect that people in the 90s would have said the same thing about adoption of stuff from the 70s. So it's interesting. The 90s was very much late 60s, early 70s and, and mod stuff in terms of its kind of inspiration to a lot of the fashion. But uh, funnily enough, there must have been something else because now it seems as there was some originality from the 90s to ape, which is news to me, I must admit. But <laughs> it's it's very it's very I love the fact that the t the whole design is that the t shirt is meant to cover the shorts. That seems to be that seems to be very strange. And the whole thing itself is based on Based on it, the reason it is called Visco is that, that Visco is the name of a tool that is used on Instagram for photo editing. So uh -huh. we're now in a situation where rather with, rather than having real life being kind of portrayed on social media, it's the other way around. Stuff that is a social <laughs> media trend is now being played out in real life, which seems... I mean, you know, if people want to, you know, if young, oh, it's like 110 now, if young kids, if that's how they want to spend their time, you know, then that's it, isn't it? But I find it very hard to understand that something that is a social part of the social media world that is at literally social media is a tool on social media is now being uh, is now being being sort of replicated in real life. I find that very odd. It is curious that over the years, uh, decades now, I suppose, young teenage rebellions always seem to do the opposite of the intention to give it to the man mm. and break away from the stereotypical. Even when music is heavily involved in a movement, it's the clothes and the look, I think, that end up being so important. I was thinking yeah. of teddy boys, mods and rockers, yeah, I don't know, hippies, yeah. punks, new romantics, grunge. They all have their own style and you have to conform to belong, which is surely the antithesis mm. of the purpose of rebellion. And inevitably... The leading protagonists of this Visco business, um, as as you uh, inferred, are all people we've never heard of as they are YouTube stars and naturally influencers. Um, so I think to summarise, neither Juliet nor I will be joining 
the Visco movement. No, absolutely not. I don't think it's for us, Terence. I no, must maybe not. <laughs> and I, lo- I love the end. The end quote in this um in this this article, which I think is amazing. They said, "How can they last through the winter, though?" I wondered. When shorts <laughs> under oversized t-shirts are a crucial part of their aesthetic, the shorts are everything. What will they wear? Probably black leggings. Lauren offers long live Visco, I guess. <laughs> Coming next. Bring out the bulldozers. It's time to bash the BBC. Mm. Um, that's next from the after Dusty Springfield. Yeah, I can't wait until I see my, my baby's face when I tell him that I'm through. Yes, I'm through with him. a lovely song that I was reminded of when I heard on the heard it on the radio a, a little while ago and to continue my sort of accidental feature of, of songs and sampling we will be hearing the flute section of that again later on in the show and it might well be if, if you're anything like me you might not have realized that the flute section in the in the thing that we'll hear at the end came from that original song but it did it's I, I, it's got that kind of dreamy sort of quality that a lot of Dusty's Dusty's uh, sort of tracks do have, I think that is Dusty Springfield, and I never get this um, this song title right. I never know if there's a just in it or not. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a go. I will run up at it and say it's. It is, I think it is. I can't wait until I see my baby's face, isn't it? There's no I just in it. Quite correct, and mm. co co written by John Voigt's brother. A mm, bit so of the, the facts just keep coming this week, yeah. don't they? Yeah, uh, Chip Taylor, but obviously mm. that's not. Taken from thing. Where Am I Going? I think from 1967. 
over the years of presenting this podcast at times we've come to praise the bbc other times to criticize never to bury it uh, but for all the flea bag gentleman jack and inside mm. number nine of recent vintage there's much to celebrate uh, despite all of those and more the bbc still manages to get so much wrong mm. in recent times the appalling treatment of cliff richard the disgraceful and still not resolved gender pay gap at the BBC, mm. and now the breathtakingly inept handling of a potential breach of BBC rules by presenter Naga Manchetti, in which the BBC upheld a complaint about comments she made about Donald Trump. An outcry followed, and Tony Hall, uh, Baron Hall, uh, the Director General of the BBC, changed the decision, and Miss Manchetti walked away a free woman, as it were. In my opinion, this, this dismal mess arises because of the BBC's obsession, and it is an obsession with both balance and impartiality. So terrified of they of being seen to favour one view over another, mm. they go to insane degrees to prove this balance. And this just takes to such lengths that f facts, things that are factual, are downgraded to being a view. So. If a guest on a show says that two and two equals four, a fact probably agreed upon by 99.99% of people, the BBC feels it must search the land for someone who will put up the argument that actually two and two equals five. And that's not balance or impartiality. It's just wrong. So, Jules, are you going to join me in bashing the BBC? Well, on this occasion, I do think they have got it wrong. And there's, there was very little you said there that I disagreed with, but I have to find a different angle because this is going to be a very short and somewhat dull podcast if I don't. <laughs> so, so I suppose I, I, I agree with you. And to mm. enlarge upon your, your point at the BBC's sort of obsession with balance, what I did find interesting about this is you might remember with the previous, well, previously when, when the BBC got itself into a complete tangle over the the Lord McAlpine uh, Jimmy mm. Savile stuff that mm. actually did for George Entwistle, who was the yeah. uh, who was very briefly the director <laughs> general. About Thirteen days, I think. It was it was a uh, it was fifty four days. So, oh, was it? So okay. uh, so he'd resigned on the tenth of November, twenty twelve, following controversy of a Newsnight report which falsely implicated Lord McAlkite and Lord McAlkite in the North Wales child abuse scandal. His resignation after fifty four days in the role made him the shortest serving director general in the history of the BBC. So the interesting thing about that is is that that showed that he had to pay the price at the top for very poor leadership now Tony and because he didn't really do anything to intervene now I'm interested in the fact that Tony Hall hasn't been there for a, he's been there a while but not an enormous amount of time and he's he seems to now have the measure of being able to um he'd been there since 2013 he's got the measure I think of being able to intervene when needs be and he has done so here and it was the right thing to do the problem isn't with leadership at the very top of the BBC the problem seems to be the next tier down and middle management at the BBC that seems to be the layer which is having the most problem making sensible decisions by the look of it and like you say this obsession with balance and you know and wanting to seem to be impartial I think that has got worse in the last few years because it is very obvious that there are I don't know how to put this without, you know, getting sued, but there are problems mm -hmm. with, with the funding from the government. There's been the ongoing debate over whether or not whose responsibility it is to fund free TV licenses for over 75s. 
Mm. And and that has fed into a wider debate with the Conservative government as to what the BBC is for and whether it should be there or not, because there has been a very long assumption that the BBC is biased towards the left. And of course, now it is desperately trying to, to prove that is not the case as a result of which is is making some very poor decisions, which are, are open to criticism from the other wing, other sort of wing, if you see what I mean. My yeah. one of my best friends has always said that if both sides think the BBC is biased, that is a sign that it's getting it right. But I think that this this decision over Nagamanchetti was really poor, and it, I can't remember what it was somebody one of the people that writes in the New Statesman I think said, got it right when they said the BBC is at the moment because of its wider political problems is struggling to deal with. Um, really vexatious complaints, I would say, from very right-wing people who wish it ill. And the the actual original complaint was against Nagamanchetti and Dan Walker, her co-presenter. And when you watch the clip back, I have to say, he dropped her in it, really, because mm. he, because the, the, they, there was some talk about things that Donald Trump had said, which objectively appeared to be racist. And so he then asked, Dan Walker then asked Nagamanchetti to comment on that. He should never have done that in the first place. And unfortunately, she sort of, I'd say, took the bait. I don't think he meant ill, but she kind of wandered into that trap, but then made some comments about relating it to her own experience. And actually, it was very interesting. And it also highlighted the problem that they have with BBC Breakfast, which is presenting hard news in a soft, focused way. Mm. That then makes it almost impossible to work out if it is a serious news programme that is presenting factual reports or if it is a more opinion-based chatty sort of program this is the problem with chatty news you end up with this sort of i hope someone picks up that phrase by the way um you end up with this kind of halfway house that then has inherent problems in it like this but the original complaint was against the both of them and if you're going to say that she shouldn't have offered an opinion i think he is equally as culpable for encouraging her to offer an opinion yet the bbc shows only to took accent take action against her and not him and actually once that fact became revealed earlier in the week once that was reported within hours the whole thing had been reversed and I think that is what has caused the upset at the BBC particularly amongst its BAME staff which for viewers or listeners outside the UK who might not be familiar with that term that's a term we use over here and it stands for black and uh, black and minority ethnic I believe Um, or you could say black Asian and minority ethnic I'm not quite sure but but it I've heard it used in both contexts, but it that seems to have been, I think, once once the, once the unrest, once that was found out amongst the sort of you know BAME staff of the BBC, it was very telling that once it was only once that fact was reported that the that the director general intervened. If I'd been in his position, I would have done so at that point because it was obvious that it was a complete nonsense. And I think had they not intervened at that point, that would have been really, really damaging. That was the most the most damaging part, I think. Also worth commenting that Naga Munchetti is a bit of a BBC I want to say darling, really. I think she's mm. been on Strictly. If you've been on, if you work for the BBC and you've been on Strictly Come Dancing, that is, and I, that sounds like I'm taking the Mickey. I'm not. Mm. That is usually a, a sign that you are sort of favoured, isn't it? Really, mm. I, I'd compare her to. You're, sa- you're a safe pair of hands. Absolutely. So, so I think it's. I just, I just cannot believe that that she. It did look like she was targeted. If the complaint was against them both, and they only went after her. 
she would not have proffered those views had she not been asked to do so. So so I think that if I was her, I would probably be bearing some feeling ill feeling towards Dan Walker as well. But I'm not sure she's probably too nice a person to do that. But I agree with you. It was a it was the whole thing was really badly handled. And the BBC, I think, has got to make a decision within itself now as to how are they going to deal with the onslaught that they are, that they are under from members of the general public who are coming from a certain position and an, an, with an unsupportive government on top of them. And they're going to have to try and work out how they're going to play these times at the moment because it is it, it, it is the most challenging time they've ever been to and they've got to make a better job of it than this. This obsession with balance is also rather patronising. It? it assumes mm. that we as viewers or listeners are unable to listen to someone's point of view and yeah. then make our own mind up as, as to whether that speaker is making sense or not. Just because someone, um, let's say, goes on TV and let's say they sh- someone shows us how to make a cake with flour, we don't yeah. need someone aft- on afterwards arguing that cakes should be made of concrete. Um, it's just silly and condescending. But I do want to kind of not disagree with you, but well, I put it this way. There's, there's just one, I think there's one final point for me worth looking at with this hmm. sorry Naga saga. Um, <laughs> and that's the way it was resolved. Um, it's in a very grey area of procedure to me. Mm. Some complaints panel found Miss Manchetti guilty as charged. Yeah. We, we know that. L- loads of people take to the media and Twitter to complain. So the director general reverses the decision. Now, this doesn't feel right to me. It's like a jury finds someone guilty and people in the public gallery start shouting their disapproval. So the judge says, oh, I'll overturn the decision then. You know, you may leave the court as a free woman. I'm glad Naga Manchetti was free from her chains, but the process seems wrong to me. Well, that's interesting that you say that. And yes, I wouldn't disagree with you. But I think that we don't know to what extent things are being fully reported here. So I don't know if she appealed against that decision. Did she have a right of appeal against that decision? And also, I mean, I agree with you, you know, it's not right, but that, that it should be overturned because of public opinion. But so I'll take I'll take I'll offer two views on this. The first view is that we don't know what other who else complained internally and we don't know i we don't i don't feel we know enough about what structures were used utilized internally and secondly a, a sort of alternative view to that is that to some extent sometimes if something goes wrong in an organization and a decision is made badly there has to be a situation where where the person whose respons- whose responsibility it is to lead that organisation has to show some sort of leadership. So I I don't know. I think there's 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 value in either of those assessments. I think. Okay, let's return the bulldozers to the garage. Absolutely. And- <laughs> yep. Coming next, what's the deal with Kevin McLeod? Mm. Um, that's right after this track, taken from the wonderful new super deluxe edition of Abbey Road. It's the Beatles. Red light. Demo take one. If you want it, here it is. Come and get it. Mm-hmm. Make your mind up. Yeah. 
Okay, give us it on headphones and I'll track it. On the extended version of the newly remixed and re-released version of Abbey Road, it's it's actually really quite touching to hear the little clips between the tracks of Paul, mm. John, George Ringo and George Martin talking, joking, occasionally getting a little tetchy with each other. 50 years ago, that was Paul McCartney's demo um, to be a massive hit the following year for Badfinger. Mm. From July 1969, the Beatles, but actually just Paul McCartney playing all the instruments and singing on Come and Get It. Mm, I really like that. It's lovely to hear that version, like you say. Now, in the States, there are there's a barrel load of home DIY TV shows and makeovers for houses and so on. This old mm. house, extreme makeover, fixer upper. And here in the UK, love it or list it, DIY SOS mm. and Grand Designs, which yes. has been running in the UK since 1999, 200 episodes over 20 years. In Grand Designs, we follow the progress of house building from concept to completion, hugely popular, and it's very enjoyable viewing. Yeah. Now, in theory, if someone was presenting a show on how to run a profitable clothes shop on TV, but their own chain of clothes shops shut down, or if one of the judges on the Great British British Bake Off ran a chain of cake shops and they filed for bankruptcy, you think their credibility would be in doubt and their TV presenting days might be over. Hmm. The presenter of Grand Designs is the very likeable Kevin MacLeod, whose housing empire away from the TV cameras is in deep trouble. Small uh, scale investors who accumulatively have put millions into Kevin McLeod's McLeod's eco-friendly housing venture, they've been advised that they stand to lose 97% of their money. Mm. I don't understand it, Jules. How can Kevin McLeod be employed to present a show on house building? Well, this and and this is this. I think that the question of this is and actually this almost exactly mirrors a conversation I bumped into a, a lovely friend of mine from school yesterday called Joe who really is the most gorgeous man ever he's a delight and he uh, we sort of I don't often seem to we're catching up what was going on in each other's lives he's not a big social media user and I asked him he was running a, uh, a horticultural business last time I saw him when we left school he went off to agricultural college and was always extremely good at flowers gardening cultivation of plants but horticulture basically he was a tree surgeon for a while as well so he that was very much his kind of area of specialism he loves it he's passionate about it and I asked him how he was getting on and he said oh I, I don't run my own business anymore unfortunately I lost the business and I, I commiserated with him and he said I am going to go and work for my friend as a designer as a garden designer again but he said I'm not a businessman I never was and and I thought it was very interesting that he said that and self-aware just because you were really good at doing something doesn't necessarily mean you were good at running a business and that you are good at the crunching of the numbers. So interesting that you say about should a judge appear on the Great British Bake Off mm. if they ran a business that was making cakes and then it collapsed. Mm. Well, you could argue that just because they ran a business that collapsed doesn't mean they are not very good at aesthetically making cakes. It's just and knowing about what, what makes a good cake, the business might have collapsed for other reasons. Um, 
he the, but the thing that seems to have caused problems is that he launches he launched this business in 2007 in 2015 it won planning permission to build a build a sort of development in Hampshire which was to consist of uh, 50 houses combined uh, in Kingsworthy in Hampshire combining a cutting-edge architectural design with the latest in eco-friendly building techniques this wouldn't just be a bog-standard new build estate but a vibrant community setting landscape grounds they were promised a running track allotments and an orchard <laughs> crisscross with footpaths there would even be electric cars for the residents to share what's not to like that all sounds, sounds very idyllic. lovely it comes with kevin mcleod's ringing endorsement we've watched him for years giving people good advice about architecture and building on grand designs which is an excellent program if anybody is interested in downloading the grand designs green drinking game it is out there on the internet apparently if you want to have a good time that's the way to do it in my view but anyway um he his uh, his his statement in 2015 was HMB's mission um, to make homes that lift the spirit, that are a pleasure to live in and a joy to behold. That is all very lovely, and there is and often new build estates are horrible things, frankly. So I am glad that he is trying to make a better job of it. Four years later, you listen to the residents of Loveden Field, some of which have moved in, and they are complaining about cracked and damp walls, tiles falling from roofs, mislaid pipe work, unconnected solar panels and foul-smelling sewers. They've been waiting 18 months for repairs to be carried out and described the development as a bomb site. Two of the houses, which, get this, cost up to £900,000 for a five-bedroom house, still have scaffolding up outside them as workers upgrade wooden cladding. It's like 40 towers. It's comical Mm. how terrible they are, said one homeowner who I admire for keeping a sense of humour in circumstances in which many people would not. But um, it it essentially means that that to what extent are we saying old Kevin McLeod is just not very good at running a business? He's just not very good at keeping an eye on the bottom line. And to what extent are we saying, well, surely this is in complete contrast and complete contradiction to his advice on wanting to create beautiful, efficient spaces on TV when you have given your name and your business has given its name and allowed a situation where you've got a you've got a site of 50 houses. And if this is, I would think this is their big venture unless they've got lots of other estates that haven't been forged here you would think if this is their biggest venture you would want to get that right wouldn't you and that would be where you were concentrating your your biggest resources if you are saying that that is good enough if you are saying that you are happy and that you are happy to have let this situation happen or even if you're not happy if you've just let it happen unhindered are you really then well placed to go on TV and talk about homes that are beautiful if you are literally producing homes that are not beautiful? <laughs> it, but it goes beyond, oh, I'm not very good at figures and becomes a fundamental as to what you're meant to be good at. It's all a terrifying insight into celebrity culture. Someone appears oh, yeah. uh, Someone appears on TV on a successful show and then suddenly is propelled into a position where they're president of the United States. No, no, hang on. I got confused there. Someone appears on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Someone appears on TV. And that seems to give them credibility to rake in investments from people throughout the land. And even run government policy in some some circumstances. (laughs) I mean, look at, I mean, uh, Lord Sugar, now Baron Sugar, was was created as sort of Labour peer and and actually advising on things like energy policy. Mary Portis is now, uh, Mary Queen of Shops from the TV, is now now sort of, uh, was advising government 
on their high street policies under Cam under Cameron. Although it's interesting when you say people are presenters on TV, I think there's a difference between people who are just TV presenters. I don't want to say anyone because it sounds like I'm insulting mm. them, but people that just will present, you know, just present anything that is like entertainment, and their skill is just being able to be cheery on TV and present stuff, which is a skill. I do, you know, I'm not I'm not demeaning it, and people that have become personalities on TV because they had success in that area before they were on television. So I would say people like, it's not a direct comparison, but Lucy Worsley is a television presenter, but she's also co-head curator on uh, the historic palaces. Monty Don was known as being a sort of gardener. Um, Mary Berry had written loads of cooking books before she became a TV personality quite late on in life, actually. I don't have a problem with people becoming TV presenters. They already have an area of expertise previously. And then as a result of which, uh, then a combination of their profile on TV and their previous expertise then opens new doors and creates new opportunities for them, which I think is what's happened to Kevin McLeod here. But I do have a problem where people are held up as, as experts, because, like you say, me, because they have appeared on TV and don't have much of a record beforehand. And then, of course, inevitably are found out once things snowball. It's a telling lesson. When voting for president or investing in housing ventures, don't always trust the man on TV. Absolutely. Um, as always, thanks very much for listening. Um, yes, that's always that's always very much on our minds. Thank you. And uh, thanks to Rona and Hilly as well for their help. Always. Um, now to play us out, we're referring back to that dusty track from earlier. We are. We are. Yes, it's a callback, as I believe people say in comedy circles. Um, we are calling back to to that tune, the flute section, the sort of the very end, that lovely flute solo. I had no idea that that came from Dusty Springfield. I thought it originated in this track, and then of course once I heard the Dusty Springfield record on the radio, I then fell in. This is one of my favourite ever tracks. I absolutely love it. I play it out when I'm DJ. I just think it's so it's such an inspiring and encouraging song. I think it's lovely. This is San Etienne and utilising that flute solo from I Can't Wait to See My Baby's Trace by Dusty Springfield. This is nothing can stop us.
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. Mm-hmm.